The big time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. Well, hey, so where, where do we, what should we talk about in the economy today? Or should we start? Let's start. <laughs> then we can take this where we want to go. <laughs> but welcome to the Chris and yeah. uh, the the Chris uh, and Neil show. Uh, I'm Neil Modi, and that's Chris Idell, the guy who said yeah. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> um, we we just talk about being better humans and investing, and uh, that's what we're hoping we'll do a little bit of today. We don't have a specific agenda today. But there's always questions I have about the economy, and there's always questions Chris has about the economy and the interplay between the private equity and the public equity markets and uh, where it's all going. Uh, Chris, I'm curious, what's been the question that's been asked you the last, the most the last few weeks from all your clients? Well, you know, the, the market has awakened from a coma. It was a sort of pleasant coma for a lot of people. It was just uh, the public market here, the stock market especially, were, were just uh, sort of rising inexorably until the end of January of this year. Um, to us, it's a little unsettling. I mean, we're paid to worry because we worry a lot about our client portfolio, our clients' money. But uh, last year's rise in the S&P and the Dow and even the NASDAQ and the uh, Russell 2000 um, were pretty um, alarming to us in the way that they had no correction, no seeming setbacks, and almost like it was an exponential high, like a blow-off top in the markets. So while we anticipated some volatility, it's come back with a great force. So I guess we should, uh, as James Grant the great newsletter writer has said we should make way for Darwin because <laughs> finally there should be some uh, Darwinian uh, winnowing out of the market um, in some sense. I mean, I was just reading that in the Russell 2000 index that uh, <laughs> Chuck Royce, who is a small cap investor extraordinaire, the uh, proprietor of the eponymous Royce funds, a group of mutual funds, has said that the Russell 2000, which is his playground, is not a company you would want to own. I like that quote. He's thinking of the whole index in terms of like an investment <laughs> in a single company. But 33% of those uh, firms that make up the index are loss-making. Um, but yet they've been floated on this surfeit of credit that the central banks have authored, um, you know, way back in... 2013, 2014, I guess, maybe, when um, the former head of the Fed, uh, Ben Bernanke, was talking about the success of quantitative easing. He said, oh, well, the S&P is up 20%, and the Russell 2000, which is about small cap stocks, is up 30% plus. And that is a direct quote from the doctor of economics. Ben Bernanke, <laughs> and he was talking about the rise in the stock markets from the lows of 2009, and really patting himself on the back for um, what is quantitative that, easing has done. Is that what you refer to as Benji's dream? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. 
Yeah. It it um is a very narrow focus on his economic success and I'm not sure it's a lasting one. But it was what he wanted to engineer, a higher stock market um in his telling would bring about economic success and real growth. Though those two things to me don't quite make sense. Um they're they're not um supportive of each other. The stock market is supposed to reflect real economic growth and investment growth and 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 expansion in the economy, real wealth. Their claims on real assets. It's not the other way around. You don't pump up the stock market and then have people feel richer because the assets are inflated and then they go out and spend more money, meaning consume more of what they don't have. Um <laughs> or consume more of what's really an artificially inflated value um, only to wake up one day and find that it was all a mirage. That's, I think, where we are in some parts. The balance sheets of American corporations have gotten worse. They've borrowed money to buy back shares. So they've been left with larger um, net debts. And so in some ways, we're um, not any better off and in certain ways, we're worse off than we were um, at the time of the last, the great financial crisis. A lot of corporations are more encumbered, um, and certainly some have come back from the brink. But I think we do have what Japan suffered from in their crisis before, a lot of zombie companies that should have been um, put to bed or at least um, euthanized in some Delaware courtroom. <laughs> somewhere, <laughs> but they've been left. <laughs> you sound like a venture capitalist. <laughs> they've been put on life support with a lot of cheap credit. Yeah. Other than that last, with, with with life support with cheap credit, you sound like a venture capitalist for that last twenty seconds. <laughs> oh, what? To, to have them euthanized in a Delaware courtroom? The, 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 zom, <laughs> the zombie companies. Yeah. Uh, that have, oh, have yeah. To be euthanized. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing. We're, we're seeing these, uh, certainly in the retail space, they're trickling in. The Toys R Us watershed, I mean, that's a long time coming. <laughs> Was it you, Neil, who in a recent conversation were mentioning uh, uh, Mervyn's? Or yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mentioned Mervyn's. I, I remember <laughs> I used to go there as a kid. 1990. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are that was a throwback. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so the that space has definitely changed. But a lot of retailers like Sears, what are they waiting for, right? <laughs> to close the door on that uh, that that uh, yeah, the, the, that craziness back of a company. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a dead retailer. It's an old model. What? But anyway, so we're seeing a lot of these companies, and many of them are in this in in these uh, indexes, which have continued to go up because uh, investors are channeling the funds they have into index funds, and many of these indexes just are created not by investors, of course, but by McGraw Hill, a publishing company, and they just assign companies into the index because they fit certain criteria, not investment criteria, of course, as I mentioned, but other criteria. So anyway, that's where we are. And um, it's really remarkable to see. But um, I would imagine that now that things are tightening in the environment for credit, that interest rates have been rising, 
um, unevenly, but yes, rising. And that China's credit impulse has been slowing, though it's still large. It's at a lower rate. That um, the overall conditions are indeed tightening, and that should uh, be reflected in some of these companies then finally having their comeuppance and um, having a date with a Delaware court. We'll see. Chris, one of the things I'm curious about is what kind of, um, obviously you're good at the long range questions and, and you've done really well on your record. What kind of actionable data do your clients come to you for now other than maybe should I buy a house or should I wait? Uh, what other obvious things do they come to talk to you about? Or should they be, you know, beyond maybe it would be great to get an answer to the first question, but what other things should they be asking you about? Well, the most immediate questions we've been receiving are, of course, about the tax law changes. That's a big one. Um, I'm housed in California. Most of our clients are here as well. And the tax law changes are going to affect us dramatically. So that's been a big area um, of focus for us and ways to help these clients. Um, that does include things we've always done. Um, administratively and structurally with helping clients to design certain pension and um, deferral strategies that reduce their taxable income. Those kinds of pragmatic steps are part of the financial planning and consultancies we offer. From um, an investment standpoint, people's antennae are up, which is really good. The um, the markets are experiencing a bout of volatility that has been sustained now for going on two months. And um, it's kind of awakened people, too, from uh, a sort of complacency that I think is very, very healthy. Um, so that's that's been very good. And now we can really focus on um, investment strategies and uh, building portfolios that are truly diversified. I think that's my focus. I'm injecting my own thinking into this. Um, because, you know, I've seen it over and over where people feel diversified but are not um, fully in that sense, uh, diversified uh, in terms of assets and exposures. I mean, I remember very well the dot-com era when I had many clients who were um, toiling away and in uh, San Jose and Los Gatos and Silicon Valley. Um, and they had, you know, they were working for Intel and Cisco, the big firms of the day, and their 401ks were chock full of company stock. Their real estate investment and the portfolios that they were investing with, even through our firm, were by the client's request heavily tech-oriented. So there was uh, just a tremendous exposure to all areas, <laughs> all elements, and even in real estate to the tech sector. Um, and I remember, fortunately, real estate rebounded quickly, but that was a very painful two-year, year-and-a-half for many clients who thought they were diversified, even having you know real estate portfolios, but they were all still concentrated in that geographical area. So... Um, I think a lot about that now because I do think that this rising tide of liquidity that uh, central banks have authored really in response to the great financial crisis, it's lifted many boats. I mean, we 
talk about the FANG stocks. People are very familiar with Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, Alphabet, and the success they've enjoyed in the stock market, um, even if cash flows don't always aren't always commensurate, but also the great growth those companies have enjoyed, um, which is very real. But even um, McDonald's and Caterpillar and some of these old blue-tip stocks have seen their share prices rise dramatically, far, far above their rates of uh, internal growth. And again, I can only imagine that this is due to the huge impulse of credit we've seen around the globe that's lifting all boats. And I wonder what that... Um, Everything is cyclical, and when this cycle turns, it could be turning now, what that means for portfolios, for clients' assets, for their diversification, et cetera. So we'll see. You know, as you looked at preparing for the downturn, that seems like it might be coming for us. You know, I remember you talked about how you thought that the uh, Fed would lower interest rate again uh, after they were done raising it. What other things are you thinking about defensively beyond being in commodities? Or maybe that's a big focus of it um, that isn't obvious to people who are not sitting in your shoes every day, reading all the information you're reading. Well, I think um, the market, this is, you know, uh, you can't have the left without the right. So each crisis in and of itself, potential or perceived crisis, is also an opportunity. Um, so what we're kind of excited about now is that um, as the, the markets are coughing up um, some of these overpriced investments, the markets do typically still overreact, both on the upside, as we've been discussing, but also on the downside. So we can see certain companies that were not real value plays come into the value space now where we feel safer and more comfortable making investments there. Um, so that's exciting. So there's a way to, uh, you know, now finally see after a, a couple of years where it was very, very hard for value-seeking investors, that's our orientation more than, than anything else, to really find um, acceptable investments that meet our criteria. Um, you mentioned commodities. Commodities come to mind because those have been the most value-laden. <laughs> that could be a smear. It could be uh, they're value-laden because they deserve it. I mean, who wants to buy a coal company <laughs> these days? But from, cash flow, from a cash flow perspective or relative to other valuation measures like book value, most of the commodity complex, including um, mining and precious metals, and um, as well as industrial metals, naturally, etc. Uh, the grains, soybeans, uh, wheat, have been very, very uh, inexpensive, especially compared to the S and P 500, for example. So, if you look at a chart of the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index uh, relative to the S and P 500 index, you'd see it's at one of the lowest relative valuations in its history which goes back into the early 70s. So there's a little bit of a timeline. But each time previously that commodities prices have been slow vis-a-vis -vis stocks, a big rally has ensued. Um, and um, stock mark, the stock markets have experienced difficulty. 
So we see these two valuations at extremes, um, diametric extremes from each other, and that usually uh, that gap closes. Um, so again, the cycles haven't been repealed. We're just seeing how long it takes for them to come into play and to be realized. Which will inevitably happen, obviously. It'll just take time, it sounds like. It feels like, obviously, or <laughs> as we can see, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But certainly, um, things never happen on our timeline. We, <laughs> we are not, uh, yeah, we, we can never, ever uh, think of things as coming fast or slow. They happen in their own time. They happen in their own time. But again, you know, the world is cyclical. Our very lives are. And cycles haven't been repealed. So we shall see these cycles return. Um, I'm kind of curious, you know, for a long time, and I know you visited India re- regularly, you thought it was maybe one of the safest, safest economies to continue to invest in. Do you still believe that today? I think, in, it, like most equity markets, uh, Indian equities, Indian stocks, seem to be priced about right, maybe a little bit overvalued. Not as much as some other economies. I mean, I mentioned our own. We have a very richly priced stock market. But um, I do still think that the potential in India is very, very strong. Um, you know, on, on most measures, they're um, far behind China. Um, in terms of their industrialization, the um, use of natural resources, per capita use of uh, gasoline, etc., all these kinds of measures people often cite to suggest the great potential <laughs> of the Indian um, up-and-coming middle-class strivers. So, um, but I do think that India is home to many world-beating companies, and they'll continue to build world-class companies. Um, and there is um, a very, very large and growing uh, middle-class population. That's certainly true. Um, and I think they have um, um, the right, uh, the um, the right mix in terms of uh, the population growth, et cetera, to realize that. Um, China is kind of on the other end. The working population in China peaked in 2015 and has been aging. So they're losing um, their workforce, whereas the workforce in India, the working age population is still growing. So um, demographically speaking, India seems a lot better positioned to continue its growth path. So, so at some point, other countries. So, at some point, do you hold equities in a number of other countries too? I mean, mostly when we're together, you talk about U.S. equity markets. Um, even though you're well versed on the others, I'm just not. Are you buying stock in, you know, Tata? Uh, I assume it's publicly traded company. Yeah, I. Um, I generally will defer to those who have a specialty there. So, as a as an investment manager, per se, or certainly as a financial advisor, there are areas where I just say this is too tough. So we'll run a custom portfolio where maybe I'm in charge of those buying and selling decisions. That's a, a, a portion of a client's wallet share or investment portfolio. But if I feel 
from the 30,000 foot view, as I mentioned, that India is an attractive opportunity, that in a general sense, the markets look um, undervalued or I see opportunity there. Or like last year with Malaysia, for example, I saw that they were going from a current account deficit to a surplus, and um, they were getting tremendous amounts of Chinese investment into Malaysia. I thought that having some exposure to the Malaysian equity markets would be valuable. Now, many people today will just buy the index fund, but I think that there's a, um, um, a role for specialists. So in India, you know, there's a gentleman named John Thorne who runs the India Fund, and he's really uh, been an outstanding manager in that space. Um, and so I feel that uh, I would rather hire him <laughs> for whatever. Who's looking at it every day. Liver or yeah. portion. Yeah, he's looking at it every day. He's, I'm not just buying the Sensex, you know, which I could. But but he's his track record is far far better than the index itself, and he's apprised of the risks, et cetera, much better than I am. So, um, so yeah, I think farming out some of that um, important work and really getting that feedback and and understanding from an expert on the ground is extremely valuable. Are there any other countries that you're predicting will do well when the U.S. economic downturn happens? More. In a, in a in a larger way than it's uh, happening already. I well, you know, there's an old Wall Street bromide that good things happen to cheap stocks. That's one of the old sayings. That one is true. Um, good things do tend to happen to inexpensive equities when the markets agree with you and reprice them appropriately. <laughs> Those last two considerations are important. Right. But I think that's true in, in just a general sense. So looking around the world, there there are not that many um, undervalued markets. I mean, we could look at frontier markets, you know, but there's a lot of liquidity risk there, say, um, you know, Montenegro or Turkey or <laughs> or something. I guess Turkey could be considered developing market. Um, but, um, you know, others like Colombia have had big run-ups. Um, Poland had a big run-up in their market last year. So it was a, it was a year where a lot of this global credit just lifted all boats. Um, and then, too, when the U.S. market... Um, tends to sneeze as the joke goes, the rest of the world catches cold. I don't, there's been um, a substantial diminishing of that effect over the last 10 years since the great financial crisis, but it hasn't been fully tested. It's not battle tested. There's been a decoupling, if you will, you know, of the market in Russia and China, and there are other global leaders that the world is in some ways looking to um, than just what's happening in the U.S. market. And there has been the beginnings of a sort of reshuffling of the global contributors to growth, to GDP, et cetera. And again, it largely involves China, but there are other players, too, um, that we're seeing. And um, even Europe seems to be enjoying some modicum of growth, um, but we'll see what happens as, again, credit tightens. We're looking um, for markets 
in places where uh, we're getting more value for our dollar. And so some markets are kind of attractive to us, like the Israeli market, um, just from a general standpoint of possibly accepting some exposure there. But, and do you uh, have your John Thorne in that nothing. market as well? Yes, exactly. I would have a, a John Thorne in that market. There are some companies that might give us, like uh, Teva Pharmaceuticals, we've been well, um, well-versed well with. We've been um, owners of that company at different times in my career. Um, they're, a, as the name implies, pharmaceutical company, but of course known for generic. Uh, drugs and their quick approvals and like Dr. Reddy in India. So sometimes there are companies that we know very well that will give us exposure to those, uh, to the growth in those economies. Um, but very often we'll have a John Thorne or our, our man in India <laughs> or our man in, in Israel. Um, if we can find a, a wonderful fund manager or private equity manager or someone we trust, um, then we can make those those investment decisions with more confidence. That makes sense. And I guess if not, you can always buy the index for the country as a hedge still. That very works. Correct. Correct. And and sometimes the 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 index is just deep deep in value territory too. So um, that can make it easier, um, less expensive in in many ways, just in terms of the work and trust and the verification and reviewing the track record and just having exposure to the index makes um, makes it easier on some level as a default. Switch gears with me. Um, I'm curious what Santiago, uh, your son, must be asking. How old is Santi again right now? He's 10. Yeah. So how, how what is your 10-year-old son asking you about the market? I, I noticed that, I, you know, obviously um, I made observations as a kid about, you know, what was going on and and seeing Black Tuesday and, um, you know, seeing uh, real estate go up and down. I'm just kind of curious what he's seeing, the son of an investor, what he's asking you about, what he's thinking about. Uh, he's not thinking so much about investing. He's just wondering why daddy's working longer hours. <laughs> I've got more stuff to read and review at home because, again, it seems that when there's a shakeup like this, there's much more opportunity and there are more opportunities to be evaluated. So I've been um, more engaged in my investment review and investing work and less engaged with him. That's his main concern. <laughs> but he's great. He's, uh, yeah. He's more interested in his cello and drums right now than investing. And, and what about your wife? I mean, my, my wife, we can definitely uh, give a shout out to Microsoft at the end. But, you, you know, your wife's a oh, teacher. Oh, for sure. Your wife's a teacher. Um, what is it she's mm -hmm. thinking about other than, you know, Chris, can we, can we, when can we go on vacation? What are the kind of questions is she asking about the market? What kind of questions are her friends asking yeah, the, about the market? <laughs> the vacation question for teachers is omnipresent because they are <laughs> right. you know, tied to the school year like we all were. <laughs> so think of yourself as back in eighth grade. <laughs> oh, summer vacations, what were you waiting summer. for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, yeah, yeah, she's like that too. And so every break, Easter break or, or summer break, you know, she's ready for some uh, excitement travel. But I think um, 
her concerns are um, what swirls about is this knowledge of the pension um, fiasco we are faced with. Um, again, that's another um, piece of defecation which has not hit the rotary oscillator, but it's uh, something that will indeed um, come to fruition. So many of our pensions, defined benefit pensions, um, she's part of the CalSTRS, California State Teachers Retirement System, um, which is the largest under the CalPERS umbrella, the largest defined benefit plan in the, in the country, in the world. I don't know, but they um, are underfunded, and um, she wonders about her benefit. You know, is her retirement going to be a full retirement? Is it going to be reduced? I say, yes, it will be reduced. <laughs> How much, we don't know. Uh, how they will rectify this massive underfunding. I mean, cities like Chicago and Boston are far, far worse. Um, well, they can never really the, rectify the it, right? Municipal level in space. I mean, they can never really rectify it. You can't use money I, you don't have to continue to pay for things that don't make sense. Right. You can't use money you don't have to pay a benefit to exist. <laughs> well said, Neil. Yeah, but... Um, so right now, the early retirees are receiving, uh, earlier retirees are receiving benefits that um, may not be sustainable. Most of these pension plans, um, like the Dallas police and the Boston police have, and the, and the California State Teachers Retirement System, have required the members to pay more in. So they're deducting a little extra from their um, retirement contributions, paychecks to help top it off. The state, um, for their part, is supposed to contribute more, too. Um, and then, of course, in one of the classic fateful decisions that we've seen recently, which is not uncommon, which I should say is very common for pension plans, CalSTRS is just one example, announced in November that they were increasing their allocation to the stock market because they were fearful that they were just leaving money on the table, the stock market was running up, and that more equity investments would help them to close the gap, quote unquote. Well, when you invest by committee, you already have a challenge, which most pension funds do, all of them. Um, you're just bringing in human behaviors that are not um, conducive to successful investing, like groupthink and other things we've talked about before. But more importantly, um, you know, you probably wind up chasing markets rather than investing in advance um, based on superior knowledge or, or insight or investment acumen or analysis. <laughs> you know, um, and this is exactly what it looks like has happened. So CalPERS uh, increased their allocation to equities um, in November and December, and then lo and behold, they got one good month in January, and then January 26th, the wheels start to come off of the equity market cart. And so um, we'll see what ultimately happens with that decision. But that's one of those classics, the kiss of death, when you're shine boy tells you he's buying stocks, right? The old Joe Kennedy line or right. the dentist. Yeah, it's tempting to joke. Yeah. Right, right. 
so pension funds, um, yeah, notoriously bad investors as political appointees, and you know they have other um, other things that uh, recommend them to that position on pension boards rather than investment acumen. So it's always a tough go for pension funds. Uh, they usually are harbingers of change. So whenever they increase their equity allocation, you know the end is nigh. <laughs> and this right. one proved to be the case. So um, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, so she's worried about that. And the the pensions it's a reasonable uh, worry. <laughs> are still an issue. Yeah, it's an issue which most uh, people are burying their heads about because it uh, represents a, a very large, um, some call it the pension bombshell. Oh, yeah. But uh, it, does be, affect, right? it does affect the economy because, you know, those who spend the most in, in the economy tend to be retirees. They're spending. <laughs> They're not saving anymore. They're dissaving. Spending down the assets, spending down their 401k, spending down their IRAs, um, spending money on trips and travel and vacation and eating out and living life. <laughs> and uh, when you uh, are reducing that, that, uh, of course, reduces the cash flowing so through the system. Do you suspect that your wife will get even half of her pension? So how many years do you yeah. think she'll have worked for the school system total? Uh, 25, 30? In the end? Yeah, probably by the time she's ready to retire, it would be close to 25 or 30 years. So we'll call, right? let's call in it 30 that, years. System. What, what, do you have any, I mean, there's nobody's going to try and hold you to this, especially. Mm -hmm. But what, what do you suspect? What are you telling her? Like when she says, what percentage will I actually bring home? What do you think it'll actually be? Well, right now, the the defined benefit, the benefit that's defined by the plan for her is at 30 years of service, she would receive 75% of her highest three years salary. So you average out those highest 36 months. I mean, that Which might is be typically today. the last three years, right? <laughs> These 36 months. No, it's probably going to yeah. be the last three years, yeah. typically. Yeah, it usually, uh, typically, it's the last three years of employment. And then you average that out, and then they take a factor that would equal 75% of that total if you have the years of service and the age. Um, some will get any, you know, some teachers who work fewer years will get a lower payout uh, in terms of percentages, 70% or 65 or 60%. Um, but they're eligible after 20 years of service, and they've reached age 55. So um, public safety, police, and fire or even given a more generous benefit that can be as much as 85%. Wait, so um, but, but what do you think that number will be? Because of the stress of the job. Yeah, well, For my yeah. wife, I think, yeah, I think she'd probably come out with about 60% rather than the 75%. Okay. Um, so all is not lost. I think that that, yeah, no, no, not, not all lost, but definitely. Uh, a big chunk, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a significant reduction of about twenty percent or so of her expected income. So, Wait, so, so we might <laughs> we we might end the show talking about uh, my my wife's company just uh, in the off chance she actually listens mm -hmm. to the <laughs> podcast mm -hmm. versus asking mm -hmm. about it. I, I read this report today uh, about how Microsoft had a decent chance to double the size of its cloud business over the next two or three years and maybe be the first 
trillion dollar tech company. Is that is that bullshit? <laughs> or from where you're sitting, does it actually seem put you know like a real potential? Uh, it, you know, is it probabilistic um, versus you know? Of course, anything can happen. Is it going to happen, or or is it just possible? Yeah. Uh, well, someone will get there first. <laughs> do, do you think someone it'll be? Will become a trillionaire. Yeah, no, do you think it'll be Apple or or um, Google or uh, Apple or Alphabet or Microsoft or Amazon? But what, what's your thinking about that? Um, gosh, it would seem that um, perhaps Google. Um, would beat everybody might be better positioned. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, a, a, you know, you would think Google is better positioned to achieve that um, eventuality ahead of Microsoft. Microsoft's larger and um, a much more complex business to run and to even grow. Um, I would say, I, I don't know who's promoting that idea. Is it coming from within Microsoft? No, I think it was, <laughs> I want to say it was like JP Morgan or something today. Some, some big bank came out. Ah, and then I would look at, is that big bank trying to do business with Microsoft? Are they offering? I laugh because I know this chain of events so well, Neil. You'll see a great um, analyst report written by J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs. Um, this most recently, I'm laughing because Tesla comes to mind. So, <laughs> Did you the, see the video about yeah. uh, Hitler and the Tesla bonds? You did what? You bought no. <laughs> there's, there's this web, website caption generator where he goes through a whole thing, like uh, screaming at all of his officers, like, what did we invest in? Wait, everybody knows those are junk. Why would you buy the best Tesla bonds? It's pretty, pretty right. hilarious. <laughs> Worth Googling. I'm going to have to look for that video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, at Goldman Sachs, which um, was offering for sale their um, equity department, um, was offering for sale um, a new tranche of Tesla equity. They were promoting the company <laughs> as if it were, um, you know, excellent. Oh, this is a great opportunity. They need to sell these shares of stock. But um, very quietly or not so quietly, internally, they were, of course, selling the stock. Um, and one of their um, equity analysts was um, trashing the stock, um, unbeknownst to them. Uh, well, they knew, but it's like uh, a, an organization as large as Goldman Sachs it has two brains, you know. Um, they're the sell on the their buy investment side. banking division. The sell on the buy side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the sell side and the buy side. So, right, right. Their, their, their investment banking division, which is issuing both bonds and stock for Tesla, are trying to promote the best face on this company that it's credit worthy. And, yeah, both, both of these, both equity or debt are good. But meanwhile, they're advising their clients who were closest to them to sell the equity and, you know, that this company's burning through resources. It was a, that was one of the most immediate uh, and stark uh, um, comeuppances I've seen from 
an investment bank where they had to uh, announce or reconcile these two uh, extremely imposing thoughts <laughs> for the world to see. But I don't think the world was paying attention. People like me were paying close attention, like, oh, there you go. <laughs> That's how they do it, right? right. Um, anyway, um, yeah, I, I would be interested to see who's promoting it. You said maybe a, a note from J.P. Morgan, and then is – I, I is there's a the business was, tied to that. Oh, probably, right? Yeah. <laughs> probably. Yeah, it could be. And at the same time, they're, you know, raising debt for Microsoft. You know, they're issuing bonds or something for Microsoft to accomplish some goal, either a stock buyback perhaps or or some new uh, endeavor. And um, this kind of very vague but generally bullish sentiment that's going to be the first trillion dollar cloud company. What does that really mean? I'm not sure, Neil. So <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I, I'm not quite sure what it means it's either. Like, hopefully it just means we all have better products, right? At, at, a good, at a great price. That would be what I would hope. That would, yes, yes. At a reasonable yes. valuation for, for their sales, right? Not, not overpriced. Mm-hmm. 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 But yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what uh, what division is Merganka working in? She works in Xbox. Ah, Xbox. Well, Which there's I... a good revenue generator. <laughs> I don't know actually. Uh, it's under Windows, so you know, of course, it makes money. Everything under Windows makes money. Um, yeah. I, I don't quite know how they're you know how they structure uh, which which products go in what division but it seems to me they 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 add the losers to go with the winners um you know and then some of the losers have to lose for a long time in order to continue to keep market share in other products so i'm quite i'm not quite sure what the you know product market plan is um but mm -hmm. she seems to like it quite a bit yeah well, that's good yeah <laughs> yeah well, yeah, look, yeah, I, I think we should yeah. end the, the episode here. Yeah, that'll be good, Neil. I think that's a very fine spot <laughs> to end it. Do you want to say, do you want to say uh, uh, good night to the boys and girls and the fairy tale in a, in a good way, since it seems like we're living in one of those these days? <laughs> yes, we are living in a fairy tale, but let's pray and hope for a happy ending. We can make it a happy ending. Thank you all for listening. And let's stay tuned for that happy ending because it is coming. Uh, it, no, really, we can't have left without right. <laughs> we can't have left without right. Uh, and anybody who has any questions, you know, one thing we haven't done is if you have any questions for any of the next couple of episodes, uh, especially when we're talking about the market, we'll do our best to address them. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>